Hey, it's Eric Newcomer here with Dead Cat. We've got Tom and Katie and our friend Teddy Schleifer, who we got to know back when he was at Recode, and now he's at Puck, the dominant player on the billionaire beat beat of his own invention. And so uh, he's also a regular... Uh, listener of this podcast, I believe. Teddy actually won a, uh, a contest that we run weekly for our listeners. If you bother <laughs> us enough times, we'll let you be on the show. Look, well, people, people like Aaron, people like Aaron Griffith were getting on the show multiple <laughs> times. Calling wow. out names five seconds in. Well, yeah, I sort of wanted to, I'm like, he's coming in from a position of weakness here. He wanted to be on the show, so I feel like no. Um, but we wanted you too. This is this is not really how we treat people, guys. This is not really it. Folks, no. all right, coming in like mom here. <laughs> no, we uh, we we love Teddy. He's uh, he's been very aggressively pursuing in the way that he pursued us for not giving him the credit that he deserves. Uh, he's also pursued billionaires and their, uh, <laughs> yes. their growing power. And I, I feel like one of the great moments we've had on this show was when we had Ben Smith on a couple months back. And he basically described this generation of people, I guess us and, and the older ones, as people who are like constantly fighting for attention in the court of billionaires. And I think it's one of the truest things I've heard about the kind of the state of this country and uh, media and power these days. And so who better to explain the court of billionaires and the person who spends all his days pestering them and chronicling their, uh, their foibles, you know, understanding the way the, the, these courts work is, you know, not to get on too high a horse here, but like is a public service for sure, but it's also just dishy and fun. And like, <laughs> that's, a, that's okay too. So one of the things that your beat has sort of touched on in current events is the idea of oligarchs, which is so fascinating to me. I think there was a moment a few years ago when thanks to, was it the Paradise Papers? It was finally confirmed that Yuri Milner, who's fueled so much of Silicon Valley, did have Kremlin ties via sort of his largest financial backer and work that he'd done. And at the time that that story came out, it was, it, it, it kind of like made a small flare in the sky and then just fizzled out pretty quickly. How do people in Silicon Valley thinking about folks like Yuri today and whether or not it's even possible to impose any kind of like economic sanctions on people with those sorts of ties to Putin who have embedded themselves not only in Silicon Valley, but kind of throughout wherever you find wealth in the United States? I mean, do, you think, do you think that was that small story time like i feel like that broke through i think it, significantly. I, it, it yeah. broke through but it, what it didn't do is change i think the way people regarded sure. kleptocrats and their money in the valley it's like well people only talk about this issue when there's an issue in the news right like i mean ones that like you know when when the the paradise papers came out or when khashoggi was killed people suddenly care about it then like when's the last conversation that any of us have had about like foreign money in like 2019 or 2020 or the first half of 2021, I, I guess I do not believe the bullshit that this is an issue that actually will change anything about society. And that's not just me being a cynic. Like, look, I mean, if, if, if the reaction was so intense around Khashoggi, there would have been, you know, a, a major reckoning about Saudi money in the Valley, which I don't think really happened. And like, what, what's to think that any other foreign crisis will fare any differently? I, I guess the word, the word reckoning is, is kind of broad, right? I mean, just thinking back to Khashoggi, there definitely was for a period, as I remember, and I didn't cover 
you know, finance the way that you and Eric and maybe Katie did as closely. But I know like, for example, Endeavor, which is this giant talent agency media company uh, in Hollywood, they were in the process of raising a huge amount of money that was going to be coming from, you know, the Saudi royal family that they pulled out of. Now it's complicated as to what actually happened there, but their explanation at least was that, you know, it was beyond the pale, what their involvement was with Khashoggi's killing and they actually did pull out. So at least for a period of time, it seemed like people were trying to distance themselves from, you know, the worst of their financial backers. I guess I'm thinking more long-term. Like, I mean, like, I mean, like, like, think about like the Saudi conference that they host, like, you know, what, everyone canceled that year. That year. But then they all came back. Everyone came back, right. Yeah. I mean, they only canceled because of conflicts of scheduling, not for any other reason. Yeah, very. (laughs) Set the facts here. In response to the invasion of Ukraine, there's a lot of scrutiny on Yuri Milner and his firm DST. And DST has said that if you look at the total amount of money raised by DST over the last, whatever, 15 years or so, only 3% of the money comes from Russia. And... You could you could you could see that that that's their defense, basically saying we're not a you know Kremlin-run firm, so to speak. Uh, but you could also look at that data and that same fact and say like, if only three percent of the money comes from Russia, doesn't it make it sort of easy to speak out, right? I right. mean, like it, it, it's it, like, presumably I mean, like, he's got to be more entrenched in the Russian system than that, though. Just because sure. the money, I mean, I mean his yeah, life, yeah. his life is intertwined. I would I would assume. I mean, look, so so it's. The other part of this, and, and I'm interested in what you guys think. Um, so in response to the time story in 2017 that Katie was mentioning, like Yuri was sort of alleging, not like racism, but I guess xenophobia or, or you know, the idea that like, hey, why can't I just be a guy, you know, a VC with foreign LPs? Right. But Russia, that's sort of ridiculous. Why not proactively citizen? disclose if it's not some big scandal, he could have been much I think we all agree that LB transparency well, would be great. Like, I do think the lack of disclosure creates yeah. some of the problems here because it signals that there, you have something to hide on it. Sure, but like, so the, the time story that came out in 2017 was all about he, he he was disclosing this, I guess, so to speak, because he was under he felt under attack. Right? I mean, his his point is like, he was look, disclosing like, am, he, he, the no, papers no, revealed to do. Like, I mean, it's not like every do other it before. Firm is, like, is yeah, it, be transparent. I mean, that, I think that's not like what any firm, it's not like any other firm is disclosing their LP. I know. I mean, yes, yeah, so so I think they should all would, have, I, I think the LP thing, um, there should be much more pressure on them. Do you guys buy the idea that like, just because someone is from Russia, is like a Russian elite businessman that they can be independent of the Kremlin? Like, can you just be like, oh, I'm just a Russian. Like, there's, there's a difference between being an investor who is Russian and being like a Russian government investor. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert on the oligarchy of but Russia. But he became an like, Israeli citizen, right? Well, it's interesting because the, the entire, but the entire rationale for the crackdown on oligarchs is that if you, if you impose enough financial pain on the people who have a symbiotic relationship with Putin and Moscow, that they are better positioned to convince Putin to change course than literally anyone else. That is that is the rationale for doing this. And so, yes, that, so what we're saying is that that rationale doesn't really work if people like Yuri Milner are unwilling to speak to his backers and the other wealthy oligarchs with whom he does business in order to apply pressure on Putin. Sound right? Right. I mean, I guess that's different than, I guess, Katie, like a a core kind of assumption of that is that Russian 
economic pressure and political pressure works differently than it would in, say, like Germany, right? Where like Angela Merkel might say, or, or you know, or any foreign leader might say, like, I'm not, like, my, my constituency is not the other business leaders. Like in Russia, Yuri's the constituency almost, is like, literally the business the people. Leaders. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yes. Yuri is almost, is almost like a voter uh, in, in this election. Yeah. There are only like eight voters. <laughs> they're very wealthy. And they're the people who have had this sort of symbiotic, mutually reinforcing relationship with with the Kremlin, right? Yeah. Where they were given control over banks, over large oil companies in order to amass extreme fortunes. But they were also given an ability to work with and live in the West and enjoy parts of the West that nobody else in Russia could. Right. I mean, it seems like any time the realities of these regimes, you know, are exposed and Westerners or Americans really have to confront the source of the wealth that they have been also enjoying, it ends up requiring some sort of a reckoning on the part of these large businesses. I mean, that was certainly the case with the Saudis, right? You can, you know, be hosted and feted by MBS and the entire Saudi royal family and then you start to recognize, I mean, you can talk about Khashoggi, but also, you know, what they've been doing in Yemen over the last couple of years, which doesn't get, you know, discussed that much, but is horrifying in as much as everything that's going on in Ukraine is, you know, you, you have these points where you can have a reckoning and it happens at the margins, but there's never like a full accounting for it. I mean, look, we've all kind of become Russian experts over the last couple of weeks here. So I don't want to speak like too much out of my depth of knowledge, but my sense of like the Russian oligarchs over the last decades or a few, few decades is that we've always kind of been amused by them. You know, they, they own football clubs in the UK, you know, they, they, they have these super yachts, they are huge buyers of high-end fashion. And that's kind of as far as I think the general populace likes to think about it. You know, you don't really think about like the source of that wealth, the source of that power. And, you know, we've come to a point now where maybe there is some analysis on someone like a Yuri, where his wealth comes from, the fact that that some of that wealth has helped fuel a huge amount of the success in Silicon Valley. But how long is it going to go on for? Like, like how long are we going to actually feel the need to hold him to account and have him forced uh, to, to, you know, to pressure Putin? I have no clue. Yeah, I guess this would be an easier call if like, okay, so the, the, the Yuri's kind of original business partner, this guy, Alisher Uzmanov, who uh, we're now all experts on because his He's the guy with the yacht who was seized yesterday. That's right. Like, yes. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> not just a yacht, a super yacht, Teddy. A super the yacht. biggest I mean, yacht. To, yeah. I mean, to, to be clear, like Yuri Milner is not an oligarch. Like, is, I don't think anyone would be like he is an oligarch. Um, he is a uh, an, an oligarch ally or something like that, or you know, like <laughs> what, what one step removed here. So, like, I feel like we're, there's like he is backed by the powers that be in Russia, but I don't think he necessarily really is a power that be. He's a power that be. This would be an easier call for Silicon Valley if it was like Alisher Uzmanov is a, you know, VC um, and is an investor in, you know, Stripe. Um, then it would be like an easier call. But here there's like, a, I think the reason it's tricky is there's like a little bit of distance between Yuri and the Kremlin. And like, you know, obviously people can in good faith disagree about whether or not that this distance is. Right. Whether or not he was like being used as a front or whether right. or not he was is, just is, somebody who likes his friend and wanted to take his money. And right, it. right. Because his point is like, you know, this sort of guilt by association. Like, just because I'm a rich guy from Russia doesn't mean that I am like, you know, Putin's buddy here. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's precisely what makes this tough. I think more broadly, it also speaks to this idea that billionaires and Teddy, if this is wrong, tell me I'm totally wrong, but that billionaires are kind of 
not a part of whatever country it is that they they're floating above taking Russia out obviously because of their unique relationship with the government that allowed them to get that wealthy but when you're looking at ultra wealthy people whether in the United States or whether in Europe in you know South America it's kind of like they are their own club and even as geopolitical events rage around that they would have be able to bring um, influence to bear on basically because of their money and because of their status that they declined to do so. I mean, like part of that is I mean, it's obviously a stronger argument for the Russians. Like, I mean, like I, I've talked with some people over, over the last couple of days, you know, on the left who have been like, well, is like Russia really that different than the United States? Like, isn't, isn't America really an oligarchy where, you know, uh, Elon Musk is, is no different than Alisher? So, I mean, Katie, to your, to your question, yeah, look, I mean, there there is an element of, of, you know, Elon Musk's life or Jeff Bezos's life that, or Yuri Milner's life that is more in common with, you know, Alisher Uzmanov's life than it is with our lives, even though we're all Americans, right? I mean, these are, you know, Far whether more it's, common. Whether, yeah, whether, I, whether, whether, whether it's, you know, the, 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 the they are what Al- you would Alisher call globalists. <laughs> Alisher has his yacht, Bezos has his yacht. Look, I mean, there's obviously... Uh, it doesn't take uh, Bernie Sanders to say there's two sets of different rules, two sets of rules for people depending on your amount of wealth. And some people can have access to heads of state in a way that we cannot. And look, uh, there's there's a reason that I named what, what I'm doing at Puck the stratosphere. It's because like there is just sort of a rarefied air that wealthy people travel in that is inaccessible to the rest of us. I just want to outline a point. like. Go for it. You take the Saudi money issue, right? So the Saudis pour a bunch of money into Uber and WeWork by via SoftBank and their own direct investments, right? Like on the one hand, people we used to love to joke that like Saudis were burning a bunch of money so Americans could take cheap car rides and drivers would get a bunch of money and, you know, people could stay in WeWork. Like those things were all subsidized by Americans, subsidized for Americans by the Saudis. So when it was a poor investment, it's sort of like, okay, great. They're like throwing their money away the wrong way. Obviously, some of these funds are great. And on the flip side, then American funds are giving them a big return and then they make a bunch of money. I I guess I'm saying that to some degree, I mean, it's the global interconnectedness of the market. And if they're giving the money to American investors to deploy often in ways that is good for American consumers, there's a fair sort of conflict on whether it's better to take their money and use it for what we want than to not not have the money at all. Given how much money there is sort of in the world right now that wants to go into Silicon Valley, do you think that if the, you know, t- the small percentage of money that makes up, you know, VC, the VC world in total... If the Russian money were taken out, would it crush no, venture firms? No, definitely. Would they not definitely. be allowed? I, I would guess, they not operate? Would they not be able to find other LPs to fill the gap? I'm just not really the sure pre, why. Pre-global crisis status quo, like it makes more sense, you know, why Saudi money, Russian money, there is sort of a, he can't sort of criticize Russia, you know, but he's taking the money, but he's investing in things we like. And there are these sort of like, okay, some things he's not going to comment on. Certainly, I agree now that Russia has done something terrible beyond the pale where we're actively trying to get Putin to change would be the time for him to like totally disown Russia. I mean, this would be 
I mean, Teddy, in your column, you basically, or I don't know if you call them columns, whatever you're calling them, newsletters. The, uh, I mean, you said he's basically probably going to have to say something. I mean, that depends how much heat there is. I, I, I certainly do believe, yeah, I mean, now is the time to be principled and to defect and you can't sort of straddle this sort of global position anymore. So I don't, I don't mean to say now that we're at this sort of war that he's like, fine. I'm just sort of saying from the pre-war period, you can see why it's sort of, he has to keep his Russian affiliation while navigating the global system. It is a complicated uh, situation pre a red line. Eric, do you agree that he's going to have to say something or do you think that there's a chance he can weasel out of it? I think he can, he's going to escape. by. I just feel like he's just like not high enough on the list. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, as reporters, we should try to keep the pressure on it and you're doing better than any of us on it. Part, part of this is just like the, like the Western unanimity from, from business on this issue. Like, I mean, it's pretty rare. I mean, by, by the time this even comes out, I'm sure there'll be some new some new twists, like every company, you know, is under pressure to distance themselves from Russia. Like you've seen, you know, major. Well, it's a combination of under pressure and it being, I mean, sorry, but somewhat cynically an opportunity to market yourself for sure, for sure, publicly during this period of complete agreement on an issue to say, Hey, look at us. We're, you know, uh, whatever, donate to the Ukrainians through your Uber app. Well, think about, I mean, think about the China situation where everybody in tech was terrified that Jack Ma had basically been disappeared. And that, like, obviously anyone in tech's true opinion was that, like, the Chinese government cracking down on powerful tech elites in their own country was bad for business, terrifying, not what they thought China would do. Like, that's obviously their position. But if you're GGV or Sequoia China articulating it publicly, like, as a reporter, I desperately wanted them to do it. But I can see why it's like, okay, that would basically mean like shutting down your Chinese operation. So there is sort of an ebb and flow where obviously, you know, I think in the interest of global understanding, reporters are going to push them on it and try to sort of surface that contradiction. But I can understand why if you're the firm on the ground, it's sort of hard to say like you can't, you know, call out the Chinese communist regime and expect to operate very successfully there. For long. Here's here's the thing though, where I guess where I'm unsympathetic to these firms. It's like there's so much fucking money right now out there. And I understand if you're a late stage firm, like, you know, there's only some sovereigns and every every dollar is conflicted in some way or another. Like you need to raise as much as you do. But like for like an earlier, like kind of mid-stage firm, like do you really need to raise, you know, LP cash from any anybody from anybody that's at all conflicted? Like this is like much this is like, I honestly feel like even, even since Khashoggi in 18, like the amount of money that's flown into the LP base and look like it's competitive. Everyone wants to raise the biggest funds and have the best LPs, yada, yada, yada. But I would be interested in like a candid conversation. Um, well, that's why I think someone who, I mean, disclosure is always like, such a lame yeah, thing. Okay. Disclosure is always a lame reporter thing to call for, but it is if Sequoia could say, okay, we've got the Ford foundation X, Y, Z, versus SoftBank with the Saudis. I mean, they basically made that argument, but given that they don't fully disclose their LPs, it's less, you know, it's not front and center. Whereas if they were just wearing sort of the benevolence or terribleness of their LPs on their sleeves, then yeah, we could, the brands would be much more associated with that. But I think 
the LPs are scared to do it and the VC, you know, that just hasn't been how it's been done. But it would be great to see a firm that's much more leading publicly with here are the LPs we represent. I mean, I wrote about a firm, uh, Base 10's growth fund, which, you know, is basically getting in deals in part because, you know, some of the money they're investing is uh, historically black colleges and universities and they're giving them more favorable economics. Like that's, I feel like that's real change. That's like change that's at the core of how the venture system works. Yeah. So I'd love to see more of that. Side note, like speaking of like disclosure and LPs, like I always love the bullshit that like lots of firms say about, you know, like they'll just use these like euphemisms to describe their LPs as foundations or family offices or uh, hospitals or pension funds. Like, and you know, they make this sort of argument that like all their LPs are like, you know, working in pursuit of the public good by, you know, saying like, oh, family offices, like we're talking about billionaires here. Like, like, they're, 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 right. they're like, or like, it's like, or like foundations that like, you know, enrich the philanthropic institutions of like extraordinarily wealthy people. And yes, like, I, I understand that like, uh, the, you know, the Canadian teachers fund or, you know, a public hospital chain like does have some, uh, public mission, but like, ultimately this is like finance here, right? This is, yes. there's some people just sort of use the, you know, they, they allied or they use groupings, I would say to like describe right. their LPs in a way that like, are the most generous possible. Uh, right. Big difference between events. like the Oregon Teachers Pension Fund or whatever. And, and like Larry Ellis' Harvard. family office. Yeah. Well, that. Yeah. 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 Or Harvard. Or Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, well, that must make it be so, yeah. so interesting, Teddy, because I mean, the sort of masking of where the money comes from, it's from the top down. You know, it's like the Madrone. Uh, you know, Madrone investments. People hear that and they're like, oh, I don't know exactly what that is. Sounds kind of futuristic. It's like, no, that's the Walton family. They could just call it the Walton Family Foundation or the Walton Family Fund, but they want to brand it in a way that doesn't make it sound like it's coming from, you know, the richest retailer family in the country. And so, I, I mean, I, I'd be interested to know post this, you know, what your thoughts are. If we are going to start seeing more pressure for their there to be LP or investor transparency and a lot of these big things. Because one of the big turns that maybe is going to come from this Ukrainian invasion is a recognition that there is a a number of pressure points that can be placed on a government. We obviously can see what the U.S. government can do in like their sanctionings, but also we've seen pressure from large corporations not doing business in Russia anymore. And then now what we've been talking about with billionaires and their you know connections to the Kremlin and they're putting pressure on Putin to do something about it. If we're going to start seeing all of these individual parts as actors in a political conflict, shouldn't we impose some sort of public pressure on them to be almost like quasi-government uh, requirements that would have transparency, you know, in the same way that we know who donated to a political campaign, shouldn't we know who is funding, uh, you know, a large venture firm because that in turn, well, we don't really know who donates to a lot of political campaigns anymore. I mean, disclosure rules are terrible. It's better. It's sure. I mean, there's, there's dark money and there's, you know, it's, it's not entirely clear, but it's at least closer, uh, to some level of transparency than we have with anything else. Uh, certainly with, with any sort of venture, you know, a private equity or venture funds. Who, who is we here? Like, I mean, I feel like that's one of the, you know, obviously your pods about like tech and media, right? Like, do you, like, I've wondered and, you know, is it, is it like, should like journalists and the media be like, you know, a- vocally and explicitly like anti-Russia right now? Like, I feel like that's sort of like an assumption baked into when you say, the pub- when, you, when, you, when you say like public pressure, like, I mean, 
is the mere act of like asking Yuri, like in some way, a like pro America, anti Russia, pro Ukraine kind of construct. I just wonder, like, who is the we and what should we do about this? Well, sort of part of what's happening, I, I think there are two different conversations, Tom's and then Teddy's. Tom, I mean, I think part of what you're reflecting is just the shift to the private markets, right? Like the SEC has a whole disclosure regime. It's super controlled. Everyone runs away to the private markets. And so there's way less disclosure. And But the private markets have become a huge part of the American economy. All sorts of investors are allowed in. Investors that get in the public markets are operating in the private markets. There's sort of a laughable, it's laughable, the idea that the private markets aren't important to the American sort of business world and sort of the health of the economy. So if that's the goal of the SEC, shouldn't the SEC have much more power to force disclosure? And I I, I agree. I, I think there should be much more transparency in the private markets, obviously. I have a <laughs> business interest in that. I mean, uh, Teddy, I mean, you're you're sort of interested in who we should be rooting for or sort of the media ethics of it or what was your... Is the mere construct of this conversation based on an assumption that, you know, American media or American tech media should be, you know, pro-Ukraine? And, and look, I mean, there's always obviously in war, uh, <laughs> there's always questions about, you know, whether or not the media is on either party's side. But like, look, I think the mere fact of, of you know, reporters publicly keeping the heat on Russian investors or on American companies' business interests in Russia, like, I feel like that reflects an assumption that American media should be at least quote unquote scrutinizing Russian interests. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I think that the media has accepted as an article of faith that the unprovoked war was wrong. That's true. Yeah. And I don't know that that's wrong. Uh, I don't know that that, uh, I, I just, I don't know that that's wrong. And I think that the reason why we were talking about people who have great wealth is because the way that the West has chosen to respond to the act of war is to apply pressure to the people who have the most influence over Putin, who are very wealthy people. If the people who had most the most influence over Putin were not a group of very wealthy people, then we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. So I don't think that the conversation is driven by whether or not people are pro or anti-Russia and its act of war. I think the conversation is driven by the fact that the West has decided the people most able to have influence over Putin happen to be this group of individuals. But but I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's good that the media is basically accepted as a premise that the invasion was bad. And in some ways, what, right, Katie? I mean, yeah, you're I mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Like, right. I, I, I'm and just not, I'm not sure like what the argument is. I would, I would be interested to hear the argument that what Putin did was right. I would be interested. No, no, no. Oh, no. Uh, uh, let me introduce uh, you wait, wait, to, uh, to the people I know in Israel but, I mean, who are incredibly apply. conflicted about all of this. Let sure. me tell you. I think like your, your question is like whether the media should be like in lockstep with, you know, this belief that, uh, or, or, you know, the, the, sentiment that, you know, Ukraine is the victim here, which I understand is, is, a, is just a matter of fact. But I also think that the media is also in many ways a reflection of what the public wants to hear about. 
And at this moment, there is almost unanimous agreement on the part of the public that, you know, what Russia did is wrong here. And there's a huge amount of pressure as part of that saying, all right, if Russia is the bad actor here, we want to understand what are the pressure points that can be brought to bear to do something about this. And so the media is like, well, let's answer that question for you here. If one of the pressure points here are the oligarchs and the money that is uh, flowing out of Russia into U.S. companies, it is the duty of the media to inform the public. Well, here's if you want to know more about this, here's, the here's what we can tell you. Exactly. Right. 100%. Here's what we can tell you. 100%. Yeah. It's, it's answering a question. Well, right. what what is what is the West doing to apply pressure to bear? This is what they're doing. And I think if they'd chosen something else, if they hadn't chosen the wealth of a few people, then we would not be talking about oligarchs. That's just it's right. what it is. Right. And if we thought that the huge amount, you know, the, the biggest pressure that could be brought to bear was U.S. companies that are doing business in Russia. Like, let's pretend that Netflix's, you know, largest country outside the U.S. was in Russia. Um, you would probably be asking people, which they do have a presence in, in Russia, um, but I can't imagine it's very big because they love piracy over there. <laughs> uh, is like, all oh, right, well, what is Netflix doing? Uh, so, so anyway, if, I, if the biggest pressure to bear was military, we'd just be talking about military campaigns. Right. If right. we thought and that the United, the if it's off right. the table because of nuclear war, but if we thought that the biggest pressure points that could be brought to bear on Putin were the U.S. Army going into Ukraine, we would not be talking about oligarchs at all. Right. That's it's, right. we're just talking about the practicalities of what can be done to apply pressure to Putin. Yeah. Can I ask you, Teddy, like from your conversations with the ultra wealthy or the people in their orbit uh, over the last couple of weeks? I mean, how much reflection are they doing on, you know, their intertwinement, uh, entwinement with with Russian money? I mean, do you see any more recognition on their part that like they feel closer to it than they initially had thought or hoped? I mean, the reality is this is this is sort of an aberration, you know? I mean, I, I do not think that there's that many people who right. have. Uh, right. like, like Yuri is sort of the exception. Like, I don't think that there's, you know, massive Russian LPs right. in like Andreessen Horowitz. I remember a better idea than I do. But like, and to some extent, it makes it different than Saudi cash or other ethically compromised cash in the Middle East where it's more pervasive. Like, like can you guys think of a single other like major... Russian-backed investor off the top of reds. Um, so I don't know if this is really like a, a billionaire question or even a VC question, especially like a Yuri question. Um, mm. Unlike, I would say, with, Sa- with the Saudis where like their money is in lots of firms. Right. Um, this is sort of a, a one-off, no? You're right. I, and with the Saudi that's my thing, sense. I mean, we I saw it was, it was like a one-year, or not even, you know, a several-month period of reflection on the part of the Valley. And then it's amazing how quickly they got over it. And they all showed up at, you know, the Riyadh conference or whatever it was uh, that MBS had been hosting. So yes, I think the fact that it it probably is easier for uh, the Valley to extricate itself from Russia uh, because it is such a specific and non-essential source of capital. Right. So basically all of us, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, all of us sound like we are massive cynics about the idea that like any Silicon Valley investor or company like actually has like is, is guided primarily by moral calculus here and that obviously the business incentives or disincentives like kind of rule the day. Like, I just think to the extent you know, their morality, they think building great businesses is a moral thing to do, good, which is right. an easy thing to convince yourself of that's how you make money. And therefore taking people's money and using it to build businesses that you think are good for society, which many of them are, I think lets them sleep mostly pretty easily. I don't even think it's as Randian as that. I honestly think when it comes down to it, a CEO does feel the same sort of moral pangs that 
any other person does and thinks, well, what can I do personally? And they feel like it's within their power to do something. So I, I do, I mean, like, like even Elon Musk, who people are again, giving shit to for involving himself in the situation, you know, I, you know, like the, the case of like the, uh, the Thai soccer team or something and his involvement in that, that was clearly a self-serving move strictly to promote his own brand. And, and, you know, he deserved all the bullshit he got from that. The criticisms that he's getting now, because, you know, he's offering Starlink internet to Ukraine um, at a time where their internet is threatening to be shut off. And suddenly you're, you're hearing people criticize him saying, oh, this could be, you know, a huge security nightmare because Russia could use that to be able to track individual Ukrainians. I mean, sure, let's have that discussion. Maybe there's some argument to it. But I honestly believe, and maybe I'm being naive here, that he- It's certainly well-intentioned. I think it's well-intentioned. Yeah. I honestly think he's right. yeah. seeing the same footage that we all are and thinking like, well, geez, I can beam internet into And Ukraine. Ukraine cannot use it if they don't think it's helpful. It feels weird to be like, oh, here's an option. So I'm actually maybe not as cynical as you're suggesting. And maybe I'm the outlier here, Teddy. But uh, for once, I'm actually like, no, no I-, I actually think they are trying to do what they think they can do. There's like no dissent in Western business about this right now, which is why it makes the one exception so unusual and flagrant. So look, I mean, like, I, I think I think by the end of the end of March, Yuri will have said something. Wanna, I want to take a bet on that before. Teddy, you did the uh, interesting list of the power players in Silicon Valley, American politics, splitting it between Democrats and Republicans. Do you remember your list off the top yes. of your head. Can you give us the names real quick and then a few observations? Sure. So this was the the American oligarch list, I guess. Uh, basically, we, uh, you know, but more important who, than who has power in Silicon Valley politics is who has the most power um, because everyone loves, uh, we're stealing this from sports media where uh, people rank things for absolutely no reason, um, you know, purely to, to stir shit up. Um, so we basically did, we called it the Teal Index, which was basically a list of who we thought the political donors in tech with the most juice were. So the top of the list was was Teal on the right and his college buddy Reed Hoffman on the left. Some other folks were Ron Conway, Carla Jurgensen, uh, Larry Ellison, who's doing a lot more politically than he ever On the has. right. Larry Ellison Sorry, you know, yeah. used to be friends Sorry, with Larry Brooklyn. Ellison and Teal on the right. Um, even through David Sachs on there. I mean, the, the, the fact is, is it's it easier to become a conservative power player than to become a liberal power player at tech. <laughs> I, I, you, I often you, tell people that like, if you if you wanted to give, if you gave like a couple hundred k a year, which is nothing for these people, you could be like, you know, a grand poobah of Silicon Valley Republican politics. You you put a Chamath on the right. Did he go ballistic? Yeah. Or that was, uh, that was that was a joke. That was basically a joke. Um, yeah, I mean, but he was on like, it. Yeah, I mean, he's basically been canceled by you know. I mean, I, I wonder how his how his feelings about uh, the party system have changed since like you know. He tried to be canceled by the Tom Cottons of the world from the right. I mean, he's like a, he's like a Bloombergian Democrat, right? He's all over the place. It's it's hard to discern a specific political valence to his stuff. He's so self interested and so interested in promoting him. Yeah, promoting his own personal brand that it seems to just be all over the map. Is my is my assessment, Teddy? You would know better on on our on our Republican list. Like yes, the D- David Sachs. I mean, I'm obsessed with David Sachs. He's a smart guy. Very frustrating politics, in my view. Do you think it's mostly about just like getting low taxes and playing into sort of the social issues to the degree that that's like necessary, or you think they are also true believers on sort of the Trumpist? I mean, not talking about Peel, Teal. Sorry, not talking about Teal. The, Sachs, the rest yeah. of the Sachs, Larry Ellison. 
Yeah. Do you think this is just about sort of keeping taxes low at the end of the day? I don't. I mean, look, I mean, like, like, uh, I mean, people are genuinely uh, conservative free marketers, right? And that's not like, I don't think everyone who thinks that is, you know, looking at their own kind of wealth management account and trying to lower their tax burden. Like people can be genuinely laissez-faire Sure, sure. Not and, not just their like, pocketbook, but it's a it's an yeah yeah it's not, I mean people people think that like just because. But the, but the Republican Party, that. I mean, literally the Republican Party. I mean, the most embarrassing the thing that happened was Rick Scott accidentally said he wanted to raise taxes on most Americans, and right. Mitch McConnell's like, absolutely, that's not going to happen. So sure, Republican elites can pretend like tax policy as sort of a ideology is animating the party, but they have to run and hide from that when it comes to the, that's not what the voters want to hear about. So I'm just, do you think the elites are, are aligned with sort of what Mitch McConnell will actually deliver? Or do you think they are starting to share some of what the Republican voters mm. want? You mean, you mean like the Trump base wants? Yeah. yeah, yeah like, just sort yeah. of the constant culture war fighting sort of the true, I mean, we're seeing, trans issues in the Republican uh, governor race. Right. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, Sachs obviously has felt this way since the Stanford review that, you know, he is a provocateur and like, why not both? I mean, I'm sure he genuinely believes that low taxes are good for economic growth, but like, he, I mean, he's not, I, mean, let, 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 I think we can draw a distinction between Sachs and Teal here. I know people sort of group them together. Well, one is very rich, uh, much more rich than the other. So it, like when you're comparing just like power centers. I wonder. Sure. But like um, Sachs is, you know, Sachs is not pro-Trump um, in the way that Teal is, just to give him credit there. I mean, there is, there is, there is. He's anti-anti-Trump. He's, uh, I'm going to be, okay. yeah, I'm not, not going to articulate my view so that I can have fun on Twitter, sort of antagonizing Democrats, even though the, uh, the alternative to the Democrats was the president at the time, Donald Trump. I also partially think like, um, some of like the teal uh, Machiavellian uh, takeover of Republican politics storyline, I think has been overstated a little bit. Like part, part of this is honestly very much that Blake Masters and J.D. Vance happened to be running this year and the same year, um, which was not a guarantee. Both of them had looked at running in 18 and in 20. And it just so happens that, you know, they both ran the same year. Peter was getting more and more burdened about the politics. Like I feel like sometimes this is cast as this like takeover of, you know, the United States Senate. And it kind of is a coincidence. And Sachs, and, you know, who is, knows Peter, sorry, knows Blake and JD as well. I think he's donated to both of them. Yeah, That's, yes. is, is, is that is that really like a belief in Trumpian politics? Or is that just like, hey, two people he's known for a long time are running for Senate. Like, I'll give them But money. of course, JD Vance's whole political posture has been basically to try to get angry dunking tweets from the left on Twitter. So it is very front of it's mind working, right? to people in Silicon Valley. You know, it's like you're aligning yourself with the very person who seems like trying to just annoy uh, your colleagues. Um, I mean, Vance is losing, right? I mean, it seems like Josh Mandel is more likely to come out of the primary. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated, I mean, there's like five or six candidates there. I mean, like the, the Peter money has definitely not been determinative you know, $10 million sounds like a lot to each of their super PACs, but it's really not that much. I've honestly been surprised it's not more and I would expect more to come. So for now, though, like 
Peter has not really been a kingmaker, so maybe we'll have to move him down the list. But also, he stepped off of the Facebook boards that he could commit himself more to the political project that he is apparently, you know, captaining. So you could you could also see him moving up the list if he, yeah. uh, you know, really donates more of his time to it, right? Did you put yeah. Eric Schmidt on your Democratic list? Yeah, Schmidt was like number three or number four. Schmidt's just like a survivor. Schmidt's just like a survivor. He's like never gonna, you know, I think I called him a cockroach in a, in a, in a, that was actually a compliment. He just, he will never, ever lose a spot on the list because he's just the, he's always in the, he's always in the mix. Like even during the Trump era, he was like, you know, talking with Kushner and just being, being around the hoop, which I guess I sort of respect just from a tactical standpoint. What are your thoughts on Reed Hastings? I always find his political involvement very interesting because he's obviously an outspoken liberal and will support very publicly uh, most Democrats that are running for office. But he's also very deeply aligned with charter schools and uh, wants to push those, which I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's complicated. And he gave a ton of money to HBCUs, too. Right. Yes. I mean, so Reed last week showed up or two weeks ago showed up in Jackson, Mississippi with to donate to an HBCU there. Uh, And part of this is the influence of his wife, Patty Quillen, who is, you know, uh, a big, you know, social justice lefty, so to speak. Um, And she has spent a ton of money on criminal justice reform issues. But right, Reed is nominally a Democrat, but has touched, you know, the third rail of California politics or national politics for the last 20 years, which is he's very, very, very vocally pro-charter in a way that makes him a little bit of a, of a, a thorn in the side of kind of the progressive movement. Well, sure, of, of teachers' unions and of, and of public schooling. I mean, those those sure. do not exist complement in, in complementary fashions. It, 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 I mean, Reed is is not that. I mean, Reed gave like I think four million or three million bucks to Gavin campaign to to prevent the the recall of Gavin. Ultimately, he he's a kind of a single issue voter at this point. He cares mostly about charters, and I guess Gavin's not horrible on that issue, but certainly is someone who maybe should be. Uh, scrutinized or interviewed or looked into a little more. Who's your like favorite budding uh, political influencer billionaire? Like who's slightly under the radar? But no, I think... can guess who he's going to pick on this. Yeah, yeah, yes. With Sam, the the uh, crypto guy, Bankman Fried. Oh, Sam Bankman, Bankman Fried. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I'm very interested in sort of the, uh, I guess Eric sort of right, um, just the 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 effective altruist political sets. So people who are very data-driven, trying to, you know, almost bring a PhD uh, level statistical analysis to political donations. So I've been writing a lot about Sam Bankman-Fried, who's the uh, CEO of FTX, the crypto exchange. And he's, uh, he's my age. I guess he's younger than, than you, you has-beens. Um, but <laughs> Sam is, Sam is sort of a, a next, like a, to, to me, he represents like a next generation of donor, which is, like total fucking hacks who like love the game and are like going to do their own complex data analysis and uh, rather than like outsource like outsourcing it to some staff. There's now like this new class of effective altruist donor who is just obsessed with the game and the map. Um, I guess Dustin Moskovitz is another sort of example, but Sam has sort of taken the taken the world by storm. So I'm writing a lot about him over the last. But Dustin is. Getting less involved, yeah. according to your reporting, in politics, and Sam is getting more involved in the general sort Correct. of directionality. I think that's right. Yeah. What about um, uh, Mackenzie Scott? Right? Is her strategy working, or what's sort of the mood on? I don't know the in the know sort of philanthropy type mood on her donation strategy. I mean, yeah, she is probably the most like 
like the, the media narrative is, is sort of obsessed with her and has made her into like Messiah. Look, I, I, you know, she's given away, I think probably around $10 billion by this point. She certainly is, is different, right? She's doing this basically with very, very minimal staff, doing it very quietly, um, sort of the opposite of the effective altruist uh, mindset I just laid out a second ago, where she is not running the numbers on everything and being extremely exacting on nonprofits. I do think that there is, I mean, this is a contrarian opinion that I do think that the, it is possible this is, ends up as a massive fuck up. Like, let's just like keep that as a possibility. Like some of the narrative has almost been too positive. Uh, and that's not to say that I'm bearish on Mackenzie, but like she, the, the, the mere, well, act, the mere act people who donating. would otherwise love process expertise and systems suddenly love the person who's just like throwing the money around. Right. I mean, uh, that, that's sort of like, the like, argument. Like, like, I mean, the, the other kind of lumbering force in the philanthropy world is the Gates Foundation. They have 1500 staff, right. And they're sort of the opposite of, of Mackenzie. And it's like, I'm just, I'm, I'm not saying that like the McKenzie experiment is not going to work. And it very well could show that you don't need 1500 staff at the Gates Foundation, but let's like, let's cool the jets a little bit. Yeah. I, I worry, I worry given your sourcing base, uh, you, you have a rooting interest here. I'm sure many of the, the philanthropy world don't want to be told that, uh, they're irrelevant and in fact, uh, detrimental to, <laughs> to benevolence and. And good in what the was world. the book that came out that was that was basically the premise of that book? Um, what was it called? It was it was basically a book about how like the idea of philanthropy, especially global philanthropy, was just winners take all. Winners take it all. Thank you. Yeah, just yeah. did not work, and it was a huge failure. Uh, yes, very very controversial and successful book. Yes, if you're looking for if you're looking for examples of books that like make an impact. Winners Take All has been an enormous impact in just pissing off the entire establishment. So <laughs> kudos to Anand for, 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 for like succeeding he in did actually it. getting people to read your book, which is honestly an accomplishment because most people don't read anyone's book. Right. At least in, within the court of billionaires, everyone was sitting around starting book clubs, being all angry about it. There is a story that uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but Anand has said it is true that like there was a big philanthropy in Silicon Valley. I guess I shouldn't say which one because... It's unconfirmed, but that there was a delivery of boxes of Anand's book to the philanthropy for like a book club that were then thrown out <laughs> in a very vivid demonstration of these people's openness to critique. That's like the billionaire version of like pouring like champagne down the toilet. It's just like, <laughs> right, let's, sure. let's throw out Anand's book. But then we had to buy it too. So actually this benefited him more than But we're not, not going to burn it. Right. <laughs> Yes. I mean, do, do you think we pay too much attention to billionaires? Like, that is this weird thing. Like, we're so obsessed with them. We're so obsessed with... Iron Teddy. We're yeah, so I was about to say, <laughs> Teddy's going to leave his beat at the end of this podcast. We're so obsessed with, like... No, no, no. LA, no, no, Hollywood, no. Washington, and New York. Wall Street, Washington, and Hollywood. That's all we kind of care about, um, largely, writ large, in the media. But do you think Main that Street is action- on Katie's mind? That's the... Yeah. <laughs> That, that is to, that is totally the audience of this podcast. Right, exactly. Know, the, 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 the Milwaukee mass it's just the every out there. the everyday person is the is the is the audience. No, but it's just like yeah. But no, we, are, we, but do, are we are we giving billionaires too much credit for how much power they actually have? It's actually a, a very sophisticated point, and I think is quite possibly true. It's thinking about a lot. Look, even in politics, like yes, billionaires have a lot of power. Uh, especially in like down ballot races where, you know, someone could decide to fund a random candidate who has no money and suddenly they do have money. But like Michael Bloomberg burned through a billion dollars and got 
you know, uh, a couple delegates from American Samoa. To some extent, I feel like the peak of billionaire power politically was almost in like the mid 2010s, like 2012, 2013, 2015, kind of before the rise. Tea Party Coke Brothers. Yeah, before the rise of especially of like, you know, small, small dollar money. And philanthropically, I don't know, I guess I'm less convinced philanthropically. Look, if if Sergey Brin decides that he wants to fund Alzheimer's research instead of Parkinson's research, instead of cancer research, like people's lives could depend on that decision, right? In terms of what disease they die from or don't die from. So I, I think on the margins, there are these like niche fields where billionaires have enormous philanthropic power. Like, you know, we're talking about Reed Hastings. Like there could be a charter school or not be a charter school because of what Reed Hastings decides to do. Or if Reed Hastings changes his mind on an issue, like that could spell out uh, and have a major impact on society. So I don't think that like this is the most important beat in the world. And um, there are certainly some lefty critiques of billionaire power that I like vehemently disagree with. But I do think it is certainly undercovered still, even though, you know, I've been doing this now for three or four years. And I wonder if our desire for there to be a narrative that billionaires are in control, it's because it at least gives us the idea that at least someone is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> At least someone is driving this right. fucking ship in the world. Absolutely. If it's not Nancy Pelosi right. and it's not Mitch McConnell, and it's not Joe Biden. Well, yeah. And I'll, it's I'll, not I'll Yuri take, Milner. I'll, and it's, yeah, yeah. I'll take Yuri. Yeah. Give me somebody, somebody. I think, you know, to bring it back to Ukraine, we've seen the pressure points that the U.S. and the richest people and its companies are trying to put here to to stop this from going on. But it could be that if the campaign in Ukraine, Putin's campaign in Ukraine is unsuccessful, it could largely be due to the fact that militarily it was a failure because of the resistance on the part of Ukrainians. And that's something that the West had no control over. That is strictly something that was the human decision by millions of people to resist it. And, you know, in one sense, obviously that's very heartening, um, but also shows that like the things that we decide are power in this world and, you know, what can change the destiny of millions and billions of people are way out of way more out of our control than we initially thought. And it's both comforting and kind of terrifying, at least to me. And the Biden administration. I mean, they really managed the story about this was happening, the intelligence apparatus. Like, I think, you know, we've been living in this post-Iraq war, you know, government security state is irrelevant. And this, this has been a case that they're far more relevant than, yeah, the business. I, I agree with sure. your thesis, but I, but I do think it's also true that the U.S., government has been extremely relevant in sort of navigating this situation. Sure. Or at least helping to shape the narrative, which is important. And like a non-foreign policy realm, I think, in which we've seen billionaires, their efficacy questioned is education, right? So if you look at New Orleans um, and Louisiana, so much money, including from Michael Bloomberg, I believe the Waltons, was poured into different school board races there, Reed Hastings, yeah. in order to basically affect an outcome. Because they believed that by introducing more school choice and de-emphasizing public schools, there would be a radical shift in education outcomes in New Orleans. Now, that radical shift in outcomes has not happened. It hasn't happened in New Orleans or Louisiana, despite all of the money and despite the fact that several of those races were won by the candidates backed by outside money. For sure. And yeah. so it's like when you when you look at this data-driven group of billionaires, do they ever, you know, when you talk to them, do they look at data like that and pause and go, eh, maybe there was some human nature stuff in there or there was some infrastructure stuff in there that we didn't really account for and that we can't yeah. control. 
There's been, there's been like some reckoning on ed reform specifically. I mean, like the Gates Foundation has basically said that their education push was a failure. They said that about a couple of years, two or three years ago at this point, which was a rare, to, to Katie, your point, a, a rare admission of, of, of fault in, in a world where every, you know, billionaire thinks that they are the, the savior. When, when you talk to these, and I'm going to let you, we're going to let you go. When you talk to these billionaires. Tom was like, all right, let's wrap this up with a yeah. great but, final but, point. Then we're like, let's dive back into I, New Orleans school but, district. But, but, oh, no, That's right. very common. Ask, we do that to people and we hold them hostage. Ju- just right. to humanize. I mean, like when you talk to the actual. Just to humanize bil- Teddy? Billionaires. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a human. Yeah. Well, you, I don't know. You went to Princeton. Like when you talk to the billionaires, do they still think philanthropy is like an unequivocal good or have they sort of accepted that you might come at them with sort of as a premise that their philanthropy is suspect? Like, do they think it's just a matter of whether they're successful in their goals or are they open to sort of questions on just sort of the general project? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I do not think that they are open to the question of it as a general project yet. Um, like for all the success of like the Anand book that we were just talking about a moment ago, um, ultimately philanthropy is sort of treated as it's almost like it's like a basketball game where, you know, you want to score more points and you score more points by doing more. Like the, the question is good philanthropy is more philanthropy. <laughs> and, and it's like almost, it's almost covered like sports at times where, um, there's very little critical coverage of these people. And I think they're also extraordinarily thin skinned. I don't think my coverage is necessarily that quote unquote confrontational and, and like just asking basic questions about like, how is your philanthropy structure? You know, who, who runs it? Like stuff like that, you know, (laughs) I think the the, the baseline uh, level of scrutiny that they're prepared for is very, very low. Unlike say, you know, venture capital or tech, where I think people at this point, like get that reporters are going to dig around. And like, I've had flacks in philanthropy be upset that I'm like contacting like former employees, just like basic shit that right because because uh, I think uh, you know every uh, every field has its own sort of media culture, and there is not strong investigative or honestly just sophisticated reporting about this stuff. So everyone can be a bunch of babies sometimes. So in conclusion, Great. Teddy is saying that um, federal governments are better allocators yes. of capital yeah. towards public good than, <laughs> than billionaires. Yeah, if I could surmise your yeah, I have I have a friend group that loves just like basically miss just like you know you just you just grab one thing someone says and you know twist it in a thousand different ways and, <laughs> and move on move on as quickly as possible before they have a chance to correct it it's the uh yeah the well we'll definitely title this podcast why <laughs> philanthropies failed yes I think. <laughs> yeah. moving on uh thank you teddy for doing this this was great thank you yeah glad to have you i'm sure we'll have you back you bet. goodbye silicon valley Goodbye, 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 goodbye.